Welcome to the 5-Minute Philip, a resource provided by Uncaged Bible Ministry. You can learn more about Uncaged by visiting our website at uncagedbibleministry.com. Listen now as God's Word is brought to us by Pastor Tony Tice, or as I like to call him, Dad. He saw people love each other, and he saw that love made strenuous demands on the lovers. He saw that love required sacrifice and self-denial. He saw that love produced arguments, jealousy, and sorrow. He decided that love cost too much. He saw people strive for distant and hazy goals. He saw men strive for success and women strive for high ideals. He saw that the striving was often mixed with disappointment. He saw strong and committed men fail, and he saw weak, undeserving men succeed. He saw that striving sometimes forced people into pettiness and greed. He decided that it cost too much. He decided not to soil his life with striving. He saw people serving others. He saw men give money to the poor and helpless. He saw that the more they served, the faster the need grew. He saw ungrateful receivers turn on their serving friends. He decided not to soil his life with serving. When he died, he walked up to God and presented his life to him, undiminished, unmarred, and unsoiled. The man was clean and untouched by the filth of the world, and he presented himself to God proudly, saying, Here's my life, Lord. To which the Lord replied, life, what life? We were made for another world, that is true. In fact, I have a quote on my wall by C.S. Lewis in my office which says this, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. However, While that is true, while we're here, God has called us to make an impact, as Peter put it, as elect exiles. That's why Peter wrote this book, to help us understand how to live well while waiting for home. To summarize the book, I would summarize 1 Peter this way. He's telling us how to be holy in an unholy world amidst the pain and persecution we will experience. And unlike the man I started with, it means that we engage in this world with intentionality. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Peter 2, if you're not already there. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at the first three verses. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the Bible, some of you, maybe most of you know this, that when the Bible was originally written, it was not broken up into chapters or paragraphs. Those were added later. 
And sometimes, in my opinion, they don't always get it right. I, I feel like verse 1 through 3 of, of, of 1 Peter 2 really should be part of chapter 1 because at the end of chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2, it's really dealing with the same thought there. And what Peter does in this section here, in these first three verses, and as he did at the end of chapter one, is he talks about the importance of our relationships with others and then links it to our relationship with the Bible. Now, why does he do that? Well, let me approach it from the negative. Here, here's why I think that he does that. Unhealthy earthly relationships lead to an unhealthy heavenly relationship. If our horizontal relationships are unhealthy, it's going, to be have a, it's going to be hard to have a healthy vertical relationship. And so if we're struggling with our earthly relationships, it's important for us to dig into the Word of God so that we get the resources, the power, the spiritual power and strength that we need to dive into those unhealthy relationships. In fact, having been a pastor now for almost three decades, I can tell you that it is rare for me to find someone who, who's struggling in their relationships who isn't also struggling in their relationship with God and His Word. The exception would be a person that may be reading their Bible all the time, but it's led to spiritual pride instead of humble adoration. You see, a person that is in the Word of God, and they're reading it with a humble heart, with an open heart, what that should lead to is, is an awe of the grace of God. We looked at that a couple weeks ago, the, the extravagant grace of God when you study the scripture and you, and you read that we are sinful creatures and yet God adopts us as his own children, not because of anything good we've done, but out of his mercy, out of the finished work of Christ, then whenever we read the word of God, we should come away humbled and just filled, is oozing with grace that extends outward into our relationships. In these first three verses, we see two relationships that we need to pursue with holiness. But let me, before I give them, let me just catch us up if you're new here and you haven't uh, caught the first three weeks as we're going through uh, First Peter. <clears throat> it started out, 1 Peter chapter 1. It began with the first half of 1 Peter 1, just with all of this encouragement. Peter just lavishes on the people and lavishes on us here 2,000 years later with all of the extravagant grace of God, all that we are in Christ. And then in the second half of chapter 1, he then says, in light of that, because of that, I, I didn't just share that so that you just have warm, fuzzy feelings. I share that so that as a result of that, that will be motivation for you to be a holy people in unholy times. And so the end of chapter one is really an exhortation. He begins with encouragement, and then he exhorts the people to, to think right. If you were here last week or you watched it online, to, to think right, to act right, and to love right. And so he kind of gives this broad just command that, that in light of his extravagant grace, we are to be a holy people. And then in chapter two, what we're looking at today, he gives very specifics. And what he's going to give to us tonight are five relationships. 
that we need to pursue in holiness. And the first three verses give us the first two. The first one is this, our relationship with people. If we're going to be a holy people, if we're going to respond to the extravagant grace of God and be a holy people, then that involves, be a holy people, that involves how we interact and treat others. And what he says here in the very first verse is that we got to get rid of the ugly. Now, I, I don't think I have to convince you of this. All of us got some ugly in us, right? And, 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 and Peter could have mentioned more than the five, but he mentions five ugly things that sometimes rear its ugly heads. As, as people who may have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in us, we also still have a sin nature, and, and he gives five of those things that can rear their ugly heads sometimes. Malice, which is just kind of a, kind of a broad word for just kind of evil intent. Right? To, to just not have the best interest of people having evil intent towards people. Deceit, which uh, some versions use the word guile, which is to be deceptive, to, 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 to speak uh, uh, untruthfully towards others for personal gain. Hypocrisy, it, it literally means to put on a mask. It's, it's to pretend to be one way to a person's face, but, but inwardly not to be that person you're portraying. Envy, that is to, to not celebrate the success of others, but instead to be angry, to be upset because of it. And slander, to speak about somebody in a harmful way that demeans that person. And so we're not gonna focus on all five of these, but I'll simply say this, that, that really all of them are a reminder that even though we have the Spirit of God, the propensity for each of us to still be very selfish creatures. Now you're not gonna have healthy relationships if the me monster continues to rear its ugly head, right, in our relationships. And so he begins this chapter on holiness, and he says if we're going to be holy, then we have to deal with the selfishness that's so easy for, for, for it to rear its ugly head in our relationships. It's interesting, the word put away. The Greek word for put away is apatithema. Apatithema. It, it, it carries the idea to strip away. It, it, it carries the idea of, of stripping off clothing that has been soiled. So when he says, get rid of, the, the Greek word is to strip away soiled clothes. Uh, imagine for a second you work as a plumber. And you just, one of those days, do we have any plumbers? No? Okay. Let's Pretend we're all plumbers for a second, okay? And you're just having one of those days, and, and I can relate to this because we're having some pipe problems, and, and this is such a TMI moment, and I apologize, but, and, and I figured out that there was a little bit of blockage, and, and, and I was in the basement, and I figured out what it was. It, it came from our daughter's pipes that go to our daughter's bathroom, and it was hair. And I didn't have gloves or anything, and, and it was wet and it was gooey. And I just kept pulling it. Remember those musicians that kept pulling out of their mouth? Like it was like that, like, oh my goodness. It just kept coming and it was gooey and gross, and, and I wiped it off me on my shirt.
Now imagine you're a plumber and you're, you're probably dealing with stuff like that, I guess. I'm not a plumber, but I don't know. And then let's say that you kind of dealt with that and then you had, you had another house and they're having toilet problems. And can I say this? You, you, you got poo-poo on you. And you wipe yourself off of that. Now, now just imagine that's like your day, and, and now you're coming home, all right? You got, you know, hair goo on you. You got poo-poo on you. You smell like a sewer, and you come home now, and you want to give your wife or your husband this big hug and kiss. I missed you so much, baby. Come on. What do you, how are they going to respond? Ah! And you're like really hurt. Like I've been thinking about you all day. I've been waiting to hug you and kiss you. Ah. What are they going to tell you to do? Take a, take a shower. Thank you. Yeah. Take a shower. Take the shirt off. That's the idea, friends. We want to hug on people and we want them just to, hey, man, just accept me how I am and just love me. And just like, ooh, you got some stinky stuff on you. You got to strip off that. You got to strip off the soiled shirt of selfishness. And, and I want to tell you, we live in such a selfish society that our relationships have become so self-centered. And so the challenge for each of us is, is to say, if I'm going to have healthy relationships, it, it's not what can they do better. I was talking uh, this, about this couple that... Uh, uh, someone close to them was concerned and, 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 and I said, yeah, I'll jump in and help. And, and they said, the problem is though, you know, he's tried counseling and he just blames everything on his wife. Well, <laughs> that counseling's not gonna work. <laughs> you can't go into counseling and say, oh, it's all them, <laughs> right? That's not gonna work. Now, maybe it's 95% of them, who knows, Right? But the idea of this word to get rid of, to rid yourself of, is this idea of if there's, if there's selfishness in your life, it's stinky. <laughs> and it's going to affect your ability to be close to people because no one wants to hug you. You got poo-poo on you. You need to strip off the shirt. You need to lean into that. So that's kind of in a very gross and graphic way. <laughs> the idea here, here. Peter uses this phrase uh, as well in Ephesians and Colossians about put off and put on. That's the same idea that, that Peter's giving to us here. Is that these things that are selfish, and he gives five examples of that, we have to take off the soiled shirt of selfishness in our life or it's gonna affect our ability to have close and healthy and holy relationships. And what helps is God's word regularly in our life, right? That's the second relationship that Peter addresses, our relationship to God's word. And what he says here in verses two and three is that we need to long for it. We need to long for it. The word, the Greek word that's used is the idea of an intense, I mean an intense, it's a very strong word that's used. Like this intense yearning for something. What's interesting is that in the Bible, um, the metaphor of an infant and a milk is used a number of times in Scripture. But most of the time that it's used, it's used in the negative. 
Now let me give you two examples of this. First uh, uh, Corinthians three two, I fed you. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church in Corinth. I fed you with milk, not solid food. Okay, talk about the word. I gave you the, the very basics. All right, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not yet ready. Okay, the person who's not yet ready is the person who just crossed the line of faith. You start the basics. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about Christians, you've been Christians for a number of years, and you're still on milk instead of moving on to meat from God's word. In Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, some think it was Paul, we don't know for sure who the author of Hebrews was, but in Hebrews 5.2 it says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. So this metaphor of being an infant on milk is used in the negative in those two uh, uh, passages of scripture. Man, you should have moved beyond this by now. You're just, just, you're, you're like just dabbling with a little bit of milk. You should be moving on to meat. You, mean, you didn't mean moving to the deep stuff. But here's what's interesting is Peter uses the metaphor, but he uses it in a positive way. So Hebrews, the author of Hebrews, Paul, says you have no spiritual muscle because you can't develop spiritual muscle as long as you just, your diet is only milk. But what Peter is saying, he's using it in the positive now, he's saying, man, you need to yearn for milk like an infant does. If you've had a child, you know what this means. I mean, we all can know what it means, but if you have a child, you've seen this up close. That cute, cuddly little thing, when it gets hungry, it becomes a demanding little thing, doesn't it? It's it cooing and then it gets hungry. Ah, meh, meh. I mean, that baby transformed into something not pleasant to hear. And when it's really hungry, it is like, it is an angry cry. You know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, baby's hungry. And I don't know, this is kind of weird, but I remember like, you know, holding them when they're hungry, you know, and they're, they're as a guy, we, I think we know biologically how this works. All right, there, there's no milk available. Okay, if you're a man. But that little baby will try to turn on you for milk. I'm like, we could try. It would be weird. We could try, but nothing's coming out. I promise you that. Right? The baby doesn't know that. All the baby knows is, I, I want milk. I need milk. I know that's kind of a weird illustration, but, 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 but that's the idea that Peter is saying. For that, that baby that yearns, that just realizes, catch this, realizes it needs milk to survive. It's how each one of us should approach the word of God. We need it. It's not something we dabble with. We dig into it. We need it like a baby needs milk to survive. We need the word of God to survive the world we live in. That's why we have uncaged Bible ministry. I think there's a problem in our world today. I think there's a problem in our churches today. We dabble when we should be digging. To what gain to say we have a thousand people? To what gain for people to leave and, and like the teaching because it was so funny and so engaging? So 
so we can write books and make money? I mean, what, what are we doing? We have to teach the word of God. And then each of us need to go home during the week and, and yearn for as something we need like a baby does with milk to survive. If nothing else, it is my prayer that you leave here saying, Lord, I want to long for the word of God again. You're like, well, how do I get there? Well, I don't know other than reading it every day even though you don't feel like it. <laughs> and start going to your knees and asking God to give you a longing for it again like a baby that needs milk to survive, to see the Bible that way. I need it to survive. Look at verses four through eight. As you come to him, a living stone. Who's him? Jesus. As you come to him, a living stone. Rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones. I mean, this is great. He's connecting us with Jesus. Jesus is the living stone, and us, we ourselves are like the living stones. We are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter is writing to both a Jewish and Gentile audience. And so sometimes he'll use very Gentile language and then sometimes very Jewish language. This would be Jewish language. This is the Jews would identify very much with these kind of words, priesthood, the sacrifices. But he's linking Jesus to the Old Testament. Jesus was the completion of the Old Testament. The Old Testament worship was actually pointing to Jesus. For it stands, verse six, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. Say cornerstone. cornerstone. A cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. In other words, you believe in Christ, you have entered the royal priesthood, you are part of a royal family, there is honor in that because you are now a co-heir with Christ, adopted son and daughter of the Father. That is of great honor for any of us to be able to be that because we believed. But for those who did not believe the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Okay, that, that cornerstone can be a good thing or a bad thing if you embrace Christ. That cornerstone, and a cornerstone is the most important rock of a structure. It's what holds it all together. And so if you embrace Christ... And you keep Christ at the center of your church, of your home, of your life, then you can have the assurance that, 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 that your life isn't going to crumble. Right? Jesus said that. The rains will come, the winds, the storm, right? But your house is built upon the rock, it will stand. But if it's not, what does he say? That rock will crush you. If you reject Christ, it is a rock that crushes. But if you accept and embrace the rock, the cornerstone, then you will stand strong.
no matter what the weather is, whatever culture throws your way. Remember who he's writing to. He's writing to Christians who are being persecuted. Nero is the emperor. He's a psycho. He hates Christians. Within three years of this writing, Peter will be killed under the reign of Nero. And he's reminding them, you think they have power over you. They have no power over you. You're part of a royal priesthood and your reign is with me forever. I want you to to understand whether things get better or worse in our society, that doesn't change the fact that we're part of the royal priesthood and our eternity is secure. We need to be holy in our relationship to Christ. And when you see things like royal priesthood and uh, that we are going to offer spiritual sacrifice, it is a reminder that we need to understand part of a relationship with Christ means that we serve the king. The most important thing for any of us in this room isn't what we do for a career, it isn't even our family, the most important thing is that we serve Christ and his kingdom. That is the highest priority for your life and mine. He's the cornerstone. My wife's not the cornerstone. My kids aren't the cornerstone. My position, title, size of the church, the ministry, how big or small the ministry, none of that's the cornerstone. The cornerstone that holds everything together is Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Do we really get that Jesus is the cornerstone? The most important piece of the structure, if it's to remain strong, This is a little bit long, but I think it's worth reading. Kevin DeYoung wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition. And I wanna just take a moment and read this. Even though it's kinda long, I wanna do this because I think he captures in somewhat of a sarcastic, snarky ways, which is why I like it. Um, (laughs) I have the spiritual gift of sarcasm, so. Um, Yeah, you couldn't tell? he kind of captures the views out there about Jesus. And sadly, sometimes inside the walls of the church. And so he gives a description of different Jesuses that people have kind of created. There's the Republican Jesus who is against tax increases and activist judges and for family values and owning firearms. There's a Democrat Jesus who is against Wall Street and Walmart and for reducing our carbon footprint and spending other people's money. There's therapist Jesus who helps us cope with life's problems, heals our past, tells us how valuable we are and not to be so hard on ourselves. There's Starbucks Jesus who drinks fair trade coffee, loves spiritual conversations, drives a hybrid and goes to film festivals. There's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what, except for people who are not as open-minded as you. There's touchdown Jesus who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's martyr Jesus, a good man who died a cruel death so we can feel sorry for him. There's gentle Jesus who is meek and mild with high cheekbones, flowing hair, and walks around barefoot wearing a sash and looks German. There's hippie Jesus, who teaches everyone to give peace a chance, imagine a world without religion, and helps us remember all you need is love. 
There's yuppie Jesus who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars and buy a boat. There's spirituality Jesus who hates religion, churches, pastors, priests, and doctrine. He wants us to find the God within and listen to ambiguous spiritual music. There's platitude Jesus, good for Christmas specials, great greeting cards, and bad sermons. He inspires people to believe in themselves and lift, lifts us up so we can walk on mountains. There's revolutionary Jesus who teaches us to rebel against the status quo, stick it to the man, and dream up impossible utopian schemes. There's guru Jesus, a wise inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. There's boyfriend Jesus who wraps his arms around us as we sing about his intoxicating love in our secret place. There's good example Jesus who shows you how to help people change the planet and become a better you. And then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed. The one to deliver us from captivity, the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. That's why he's amen. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of a new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Jesus is the Christ that God spoke of to the serpent, the Christ prefigured to Noah in the flood, the Christ promised to Abraham, the Christ prophesied through Balaam before the Moabites, the Christ guaranteed to Moses before he died, the Christ promised to David when he was the king, the Christ revealed to Isaiah as a suffering servant, the Christ predicted through the prophets and prepared for through John the Baptist. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father, Son, Savior of the world and substitute for our sins. More loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. That's the cornerstone. That's Jesus. And if we ever are going to see holiness in our lives, it is time that we hold a very high view of Christ Amen. in our lives and in our songs and in our preaching. And when we become consumed with Jesus, anything other than serving him with our lives is just stupid. It won't even make sense when we see someone who says they're a Christian and doesn't serve Christ with their life. We just look and shake our head and say, how stupid is that?
My wife's not here. Stupid is a naughty word in our house, so I'm saying it because I can say it because she's not here. <laughs> Nobody tell her, please. Hope she doesn't watch this later in the week. But I mean that. When you really get and are consumed with who Jesus is, it is stupid to live any other way than a life fully his. Verse nine and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Let me just stop there. He's using Jewish language again. He's reminding us we are part of royalty. And it's not just for heaven someday. Look what he says. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now listen, we don't live by the old covenant, okay? We belong as new covenant Christians. We gather and worship the church. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. Capital C, the body of Christ, all Christians everywhere. My, my new friend in Ethiopia is part of my church, the church, capital C, universal church, and then small c, a local church that everyone should be uh, uh, connected to and involved in. We are to have a relationship to the church. And what is that relationship? What is the point? According to Peter, it is to proclaim God's glory. When it says that we are, we are part of, and again, he uses Jewish language, but he's referring to the church, right? Those that know Christ. What is our role? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's the most important thing that you and I can do to proclaim the excellency of Christ? The most important thing you can do, when you go to work tomorrow, the most important thing you can do is proclaim with your life and your words how excellent Christ is. My opinion is that there is an identity crisis in the American church. I believe that many churches, not all churches, and, and I am pro-church. I, I, I am going to pastor again, and, and super soon, like probably within a month, I'm going to start pastoring again in a church, a new church called Church on the Rock. It's based on Christ. I'm pro-church. But I think there is a problem in the American church and I think that we've lost our way in a lot of ways, a lot of churches. And I mean none in specific, I just mean in general, as you look around, the things that are being taught and, and the things that we're celebrating and the, the things that we make most important, I think that there is an identity crisis. We've lost our way. What is the primary purpose? 1865, Lewis Carroll wrote the famous novel Alice in Wonderland. It originated from one of the stories he told on a boating trip with the children of his good friend, Henry Little, who was dean of Christ Church in Oxford. 
He named the main character after the middle daughter, Alice. What tells the story of a little girl living a normal, insignificant life until she falls into a rabbit's hole that takes her to a whole new world full of excitement and adventure. I think there's a bit of the, a glimpse of the gospel, by the way, <laughs> in that story, whether he intended to or not. But in one of the chapters, Lewis Carroll writes that one day Alice came to a fork in the road and saw a Cheshire, Cheshire? Cheshire. Cheshire or Cheshire? Cheshire. Or Cheshire, Alcott? In a tree. Which road do I take, she asked. Where do you want to go, the cat responds. I don't know, Alice answers. Then said the cat, it doesn't matter. I wonder if that's in some ways, the American church, where are you going? We're not sure, but look, people are coming. But where are you going? Jim Putman and Bob Harrington in their book, Discipleship, said, attendance, busyness, construction, finances, and programs are not real indications of success. The core question of effectiveness the question that ultimately matters is whether the people who are getting saved are being conformed to the likeness of Christ. Are we making mature disciples of Jesus who are not only able to withstand the culture, but also are making disciples of Jesus themselves? To be holy is to understand that I am part of the body of Christ and with that comes a responsibility as one who's consumed with Christ, who wants to give my life to serving the kingdom and to realize that Christ wants me to do that through the body of Christ, through the local church, that I have a responsibility not to come and just attend and to take, but I have a responsibility to be part of the mission of Jesus in that church. First and foremost, as I mentioned, is to proclaim God's glory. Not brag about our church and how much money we raised for this thing or how much we grew by this month. It is to proclaim Christ Jesus in our culture. Amen. That when people leave, they're not talking about a speaker, they're talking about a savior. When we don't judge the music on how did it make me feel, did I like it, but we judge it based on did it help me enter into the holy of holies and proclaim and magnify the name of Christ. The church exists to proclaim God's glory and God is glorified when the church is doing the mission of Jesus, making disciples. Verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. He, he loves that word exiles. He's used that quite a few times already. Just these first chapter and a half. To abstain from passions of the flesh 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, the fifth relationship that we need to pursue holiness is is our relationship to the world. And our responsibility in our relationship to the world is to show them something better. Not to win arguments. Not to fight the world, but to love the world. The people of the world. But also hear this, not for the world to love us, not to be popular and acceptable to the world. Oh, hear this. But to be distinct and to offer something better than what this world has to offer. And Peter says, even your enemies even the ones who are trying to take you down, you proclaim the excellencies of Christ and you show them a better way. These Christians were facing more persecution than anybody in this room probably will ever face maybe even in their lifetime. I, I think that there's more and more persecution coming to the church, but, um, most likely. It's moving in that direction. It's happening in some ways, but honestly, n- even still nothing in comparison to what these Christians were facing. Nero, I, I mentioned this the first week, he would be entertained by by putting animal skin on the Christians and then and letting loose ravenous wild dogs and for sport, watching them devour the Christians to death. It's said, tradition says that he would light his garden by lighting Christians on fire to light his garden at night. These were Christians who, who literally did not know when they woke up if this would be their last, last day. When, when Peter, when Peter wrote this book, as Nero began to terrorize Christians, he knew that his day was coming because Jesus told Peter in John 15 the day would come when he'd be tortured. So for any of us to say, well, you don't understand how that one person betrayed me. How could you say? We got nothing on the author or the audience of this letter when it comes to persecution and paying the price to be Christ-like in a Christless society. And Peter, knowing what was coming to him, wrote, let them see Christ in you. More important than his health or his life 
was that they may someday glorify God on the day of visitation. In other words, that his persecutors might come to know Christ. By the way, he responded to the pain and the persecution. I want us to dig deep into God's word, whether it's the, the, the church I start or uncaged, anything in my life as a father. God has made it so clear to me that I'm to give my last days, however long that is, to help people fall in love with this book. I'll never be an organizational leader. That's not in the cards for me. But I love this book. And more importantly, I love the God who wrote this book. And the deeper we learn to dig into this book, the deeper our faith can get. And the more in love with God we become. And we can say, whatever the future holds, I just want Christ to be magnified in my life. It changes how we view persecution. It changes how we view our enemies. Because it's not about us. Remember how this started? We gotta get rid of the soiled shirt of selfishness. Because it's not about us. It is about magnifying the name of Jesus Christ. Even with our enemies. Even with the jerk at work. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together. I want to read Matthew 5, 14 through 16 as the closing prayer. I had a few other things, but I think we're good. Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Let's read this together, shall we? You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's the words of Jesus Christ right there. That's the call on your life. That's the call on my life. Not to be rich, not to be successful, not to have the title, not to have a perfect family. That's the call on our life, that our light would shine upon the excellency of Christ. Father God, thank you for your holy word. Help us be holy in all of our relationships and what is holy is to show through life and through words to show how excellent and glorious you are. So may we lean into that this week, Father. Help us in the power of Christ 
to strip off the soiled shirt of selfishness that, that keeps us from looking like Jesus. And Father, as we lean in this week and all the busy things we may have, may we choose first to feast on the meat of your word. May we yearn for it like a baby does milk. Grow us deep roots so that we can withstand the Christlessness around us and not just survive but thrive in it as we shine the light of a better way, the way of Christ. We pray this for your glory and all God's people said, amen. Amen. We hope you were encouraged by God's word today. You can join us each weekday morning for a five-minute fill-up. And for other teaching, writing, and training resources, don't forget to check out our website at uncagedbibleministry.com. The mission of Uncaged is to help people fall in love with the Word of God so they fall more in love with the God of the Word.